Okay, the sutta opens when the Buddha has been walking alone near in the Magadan country and he arrives at Rajagaha and he stops at a potter shed and he asks to spend the night in the shed and the potter allows him to stay. When the Buddha comes to the shed he finds that there is a monk already living in the shed, already staying there for the night and they have a conversation and this young monk tells him that he has gone forth as a disciple of the Blessed One, of the Buddha. But this monk doesn't know that this visitor is the Buddha himself. And so when the Buddha hears this, then he's very impressed that this monk has gone forth out of faith in him. And without revealing his identity, he says he will teach him the Dhamma. And then he makes the basis of his discourse the theme of what's called the Four Foundations, the Four Aditana, the Foundations of Wisdom, Truth, Peace, and Relinquishment. And he takes as the first foundation, the foundation for wisdom. And he uses this heading as the basis for giving a long exposition on the contemplation of the elements. <coughs> First, these are the six elements. First, contemplating the four bodily elements in terms of the constituents of the body, and then using this as a means for insight into anatta, and thereby eliminating attachment to the body and identification with the body as self. Okay, then the Buddha takes the, well, the four main primary material elements, then the space element, then the Buddha takes the consciousness element, the vijnana dhatu, and he expounds the consciousness element through the feeling of Vedana, which is connected with consciousness, till by this exposition, the Buddha leads this disciple to a state of pure equanimity, which is the highest type of feeling. It's actually said to be the equanimity of the fourth jhana. Then the Buddha says that even this equanimity, the meditator doesn't identify with or grasp, but he contemplates this equan equanimity as being something which is conditioned brought about by volition, and in this way he ends all of the attachment to consciousness, and then his mind becomes liberated from the defilements. And this takes us through paragraph 22, that's where we ended last time. I'll just go through that last section again. Okay, when the meditator gets to the point where the mind has been established in this pure equanimity, then he reflects that if he were to direct this equanimity to any of the four formless states, four arupa, 
our rupayatanas, then that equanimity could be used as a springboard for gaining rebirth into the formless realm where one would be able to live for thousands and thousands of aeons. But in the end, even that very subtle, very refined existence in the formless realm will come to an end to be followed by rebirth in some other realm. And so therefore, by contemplating in this way, the meditator doesn't form any volitions, generate any attachment to any of, through this very pure equanimity. And in this way, then he does not cling to anything in the world. When he does not cling, his mind is not agitated. And when the mind is not agitated, then he attains Nibbana. Okay, that's as far as we went last time. Okay, now this really takes us to the attainment of Arahatsya, the final goal. Now in the next section, the Buddha is going to show the Arahat's response to the different types of feeling. This will show the Arahat's experience through the remainder of his lifespan. And the Buddha takes feeling as a kind of basis for showing the inner abiding of the Arahat. He says, if he feels a pleasant feeling, then he understands it is impermanent, there is no holding to it, there is no delight in it. Similarly, if he feels a painful feeling, if he feels a neutral feeling. Normally, when one experiences a pleasant feeling, then there arises that pleasant feeling becomes a stimulus for the latent tendency of raga, of lust or craving. And so one holds to the pleasant feeling on account of that tendency to lust. If one feels a painful feeling, then there arises annoyance, irritation, anger, displeasure. And when there arises a neutral feeling, then usually we just live in a state of dull equanimity, not aware of the subtle impermanence of that neutral feeling. But the arahant, for any type of feeling, pleasant, painful, neutral, he experiences that feeling with full mindfulness and clear comprehension. He knows the feeling is impermanent, therefore he does not become attached to it and does not take any delight in it. But pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling, have no ability to shape or to agitate his mind in any way. Okay, so if he feels, the text continues, if he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a neutral feeling, he feels it detached. Then when he feels a 
bodily feeling, then he understands that this feeling that's felt, experienced through the body will continue only as long as this body lasts. That there will be no more feeling when this body breaks up at what we call death. When he feels a mental feeling, any kind of inner mental experience, not a bodily feeling, then he understands that this feeling continues, these mental feelings, only as long as the life faculty continues. That when the life faculty comes to an end of death, then there'll be no more mental feelings. And so then he understands that on the dissolution of the body, with the ending of life, all feeling, everything that is felt, not being delighted in, will become cool right here. The verb that's used is siti bhavisanti, which means siti ladainwa, I think. <laughs> that it will become cool, that will be Feeling is understood as some kind of disturbance, even the subtlest pleasant feelings and neutral feelings involve some degree of disturbance. And so the Arahant understands that all feeling is really suffering. <laughs> and so that with the, it's all feeling is a kind of burning of the mind, even for the Arahant who has no more defilements. And so he understands that when this body breaks up, then all feeling will become cool, that will be a complete ending of all feeling. Then the Buddha uses a simile to illustrate this. He says that just as an oil lamp burns in dependence on oil and a wick, and when the oil and wick are used up, if it does not get any more fuel, it is extinguished from lack of fuel. And here the, in Pali, when we get a meaning across, it's hard to communicate in English, the verb that's used for extinguished is nibhayati, which is related to the noun nibbana. Normally when we have a lamp burning with the wick, We have the lamp burning in dependence on the oil and the wick. And when the oil starts to get low, then we pour in more oil so the lamp will continue to burn. But if the wick is getting um, mangled, then we cut off the top part of the wick until it becomes fresh, and then the lamp will continue to burn. In this simile, I think we could consider like the wick is like the physical body, and the oil is like craving. I think it's like craving. Because normally we keep on pouring in more oil and so the fire continues to, to burn. But if we don't pour in any more oil, then the lamp will just burn up its existing store of oil and then with no more oil it will go out. 
And so here, in the case of the arahant, there's no more craving, but there's still a certain residue of past karma which has brought this body into existence. And as long as that karma still has force, the body will continue to live, and all five aggregates will function, or even the mental aggregates, aggregate of consciousness. And so the arahant will continue to live in the world, to experience pleasant, painful sensations, to engage in his ordinary routine activities. But now his mind is completely free of loba, dosa, moba. <coughs> and this freedom from greed, hatred, delusion, while alive, this is what is called the Nibbana element with a residue remaining. It's called Sa'upadisesa Nibbana doctrine. <coughs> the residue are the five aggregates which have come into existence through previous ignorance, craving, and karma. Even when ignorance and craving are eliminated, still the force of karma continues for a little while till the lifespan comes to an end. This is like when we turn off, say, a fan. Maybe we don't have lamp here. <laughs> but it's like turning off the fan. As soon as you turn it off, it doesn't stop spinning. It continues to spin for two, three minutes till the momentum that was put into it through the previous electricity till that comes to an end. And then when the momentum dies down, the lamp stops, I'm sorry, the, the fan stops turning. Bicycle is, Bicycle is a good simile. Well, we have a fan here. So yeah, but there you see the platform. <laughs> okay, and so this turning of the fan, even though the electricity is turned off, that is like the continuation of the Arhat's life, even after all of the defilements are extinguished. <coughs> but the Arhat knows that he's bearing his final body, that this is the last existence, and after this, there is no renewal of existence, no more rebirth. <coughs> And so he understands that everything that is felt not being delighted in will become cool right here, just like the lamp that is. <coughs> okay, now after this long exposition on the contemplation of the elements which began in paragraph 13, now the Buddha sort of sums up this part of the discourse by connecting this exposition back to the four foundations. This is the foundation of wisdom. So he says, therefore, a bhikkhu possessing this wisdom possesses the supreme foundation of wisdom. For this is the supreme noble wisdom, namely, the knowledge of the destruction of all suffering.
Okay, so now at this point we've completed the first foundation. That's called in Pali, Panya Aditana, the foundation of wisdom. One begins, you could say, creating a foundation for wisdom by practicing this contemplation of the elements. Even from the very earliest point of contemplating the body in terms of the four or five elements, contemplating the mind in terms of the element of consciousness, then one is building up the foundation of wisdom, little by little. Then, when one brings this entire process of contemplation to its conclusion with the attainment of arahanship, then one has established perfectly the full foundation of wisdom. <coughs> I think that when you spoke about the feeling which are still present in the arahant, yeah. you know, that we have to know that the feelings are separated from emotions. They are cut off from emotions, from negative emotions. From negative emotions. Yes, and maybe the others are, I mean, there is only two motives of thoughts, which yeah. are karuna and mudita, yeah. you know, anyway. They are prevailing. Meta, karuna, meta is not I think it is only Karuna or No, I would have met the, the rest is established, uh, yeah, yeah. which doesn't need yeah, a special yeah. thought process. Yeah. Huh? And uh, when you come back to that uh, simile of the ventilator, I said the bicycle, because he has still to face the pothole. If he doesn't trample anymore and the bicycle goes, he has still to face the pothole which he has built in formal life. No, which he finds again on his road. Mm. Like in the case of Mahamagala. Mm. No, he, he could not avoid that. Mm. So the bottles which are there, yeah. they may still be affected, but the, the attitude towards it is different. <laughs> so generally the, the Arahant will have very, very perfectly developed mindfulness and clear comprehension. <laughs> and so he'll be able to avoid most of the potholes, but there will be some that... <laughs> then he has not gone Sri Lanka. <laughs> okay, so now we come to the second foundation. I'll write these foundations in Pali. Okay, now we come to the foundation of truth. Okay, so the Buddha says, his deliverance, or his liberation, vimuti, being founded upon truth, is unshakable. Then the next sentence is very important, very interesting. For that is false, which has a deceptive nature, and that is true, which has an undeceptive nature. That is Nibbana. <coughs> Here the text says that that is false, Musa. It's like Musa Vada. 
which has a deceptive nature. The word is mosadhamma. Maybe I don't have to write it. Mosadhamma. And mosa also means, it has a two meanings. One is deceptive, the other is perishable, subject to destruction. So whatever is subject to destruction, whatever is perishable, is false or deceptive, unreliable. And therefore, it's ultimately untrue, or not completely real. But that is true, such a real, which has an undeceptive nature, which also the word undeceptive also it's amosadhamma, which also can mean which has an imperishable nature, an indestructible nature. And that is Nibbana. So this is why I don't really completely agree with the Abhidhamma interpretation, which says that there are four paramatadhammas, <laughs> four things which are ultimate realities. Since, I think, in the oldest teaching, the only ultimate reality is Nibbāna. Everything else is all conditioned things, are somewhat of a pseudo-reality, deceptive. (coughs) Okay, so a bhikkhu possessing this truth possesses the supreme foundation of truth. For this is the supreme noble truth. Paramang Arya Satya. Nibbana, which has an undeceptive nature. <coughs> so we have here, when the Buddha uses the expression Paramang Arya Satya, he's referring to the four noble truths indirectly. And of the four noble truths, the only one which we call supreme, parama, is nibbana. The other noble truths are, you could say, part of conditioned reality. And so they are only taught as noble truths because they are part of the formula or the structure that one has to understand in order to reach the supreme noble truth, to reach nibbana. <coughs> Anything to Oh, I only ask myself if yes. Sammanyana and Sammavimutti belongs to Nibbana. They because are it is outside of the Eightfold Path. Yeah, they are not Sammanyana, Sammavimutti are not identical with Nibbana. Not identical. No, they are factors of experience. They are conditioned. They are, we say, they are parts of the Arahants sort of mental makeup, but they're not identical with me. Okay, now we come to the third foundation. Okay, formerly when this person was ignorant, he acquired and developed, here a word is used that doesn't have a good translation, the word is translated here, attachments, but the Pali word is upaddhi, upaddhi, all right. 
upadi, the original sense, is what one, something that one rests upon, that one is supported by. And the word comes or came to be used in relation to property, or even better than attachments, you could say assets. Like you have a certain amount of property, money in the bank, um, a home, a car, computer, um, refrigerator, all of these things, sons, daughters, you speak of, these are my assets. <laughs> and this seems to be the sense of the original way in which upadi was used. But the way the Buddha makes use of these, this term, according to the commentaries, they explain that there's four types of upadi. One is the upadi of sense pleasures, or we could say commodities, objects that provide pleasure and security. These are the personal assets, bank accounts, stocks and bonds, um, various commodities ones that one owns, the things that give pleasure and security. Okay, the second type of upati assets are one's own five aggregates, these five aggregates of clinging. Then a third type of upati is the act of, or you could say, the mental states that cause one to grasp upon things as a basis for security. This is the subjective type of attachment, the defilements. And then the fourth type of upadi are the karmically creative actions that bring one into different situations. Okay, so these are the four types of assets that a person has. A cube would say the possessions, material possessions, the five aggregates, the mental defilements, and accumulations of karma. Okay, so here in this passage, I think the Buddha is referring primarily to upadi in the sense of defilements. But also, since the defilements are the cause for acquiring the five aggregates and future existences, we could understand by implication that the five aggregates are also indicated. Okay, so now this person, the Buddha continues, has abandoned these upati, these assets, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so they are no longer subject to future arising. So both the defilements and the five aggregates. Therefore, a bhikkhu possessing this relinquishment possesses the supreme foundation of relinquishment. For this is the supreme noble relinquishment, namely the relinquishing of all attachments. 
And here the Buddha uses, again, this is a, like a loaded expression, sub upati pati the relinquishing, giving up of all attachments or all essence. This commonly occurs in the text as a synonym for nirvana. <laughs> so sort of when you have like a when you're familiar with a number of texts, then you sort of can cross-reference from one passage to another passage, and you come across this term, the relinquishing of all attachments, and you know this comes in this list of terms, sabha-sankhara, samato, sabhupati, padimisago, tanha-kayo, nirogo, nirvana. So you place it in that passage, and you know that it's a synonym for Nibbana. And the word that's used here, Chaga, again it has two meanings. That's the good thing about many Pali words, they have two meanings. And when the text use the word, a particular word, then you get both meanings coming into play. When you translate into English, you can only use an English term which highlights one meaning then you lose the implication of the other, the sense of the other meaning. So chaga, in Sanskrit, chaga means at one level, generosity, giving, almost the same as dan. So the Buddha praises householders who have a mind free from the taint of selfishness, who live at home, dedicated to chaga, to generosity, to giving. But then when that quality of generosity or giving gets carried to a higher level, a more inward level, then it becomes giving up or renunciation. First at the level, say, physical renunciation, leaving the household life, taking ordination as a monk, going into the forest and leading an ascetic meditative life. Then chaga at the highest level becomes a completely inward giving up, the giving up of all defilements, of all <coughs> attachment to all of the assets that we usually depend upon, like this thing. What makes our identity what gives us a <coughs> some substance in the world is our assets, our acquisitions. We have a name card saying president of this and that. We have, <laughs> or we have a chest or drawer at home where we have all of our degrees, credentials. <laughs> all of that establishes our identity. First, one gives it up physically. <laughs> through renunciation, then mentally one gives up attachment to every notion of I, mine, and myself. And then that becomes the inner relinquishing of all attachments. Yeah, maybe he finds the difference between these two kind of liberalities, one giving up and the honest, no? he finds 
somewhere, I think in Anguttara Nikaya, there are eight motivations for giving. From the lowest gift out of uh, attachment, up over my uh, uh, dislikes, to fear, to tradition, to uh, speculation, uh, it comes back, to having joy with the gift, up to the highest form of gifts only for the purpose of getting rid of craving. Yeah, yeah. So this is of course yeah, yeah. belongs in these fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are several steps yeah. of chada which are according to yeah. our mental yeah. accomplishments. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, now we come to the fourth foundation. Okay, formerly, when this person was ignorant, he experienced covetousness, desire, and lust. These are all just synonyms for loba, for greed. Now he has abandoned them, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them, so they are no longer subject to future arising. <coughs> Again, formerly, when he was ignorant, he experienced anger, ill will, and hate. These are just different synonyms for dosa, hatred. Again, now he has abandoned them. Formerly, when he was ignorant, he experienced ignorance and delusion, moha, apicha and moha. Now he has abandoned them, cut them off at the root, and so on. So they are no longer subject to future arising. <coughs> Therefore, a bhikkhu possessing this peace possesses the supreme foundation of peace. For this is the supreme noble peace, namely the pacification the calming down, the subsiding of lust, hate, and delusion. Again, this is a synonym for Nibbana. And then the Buddha sort of sums up this whole thing by coming back to the four foundations as a whole. So it was with reference to this that it was said one should not neglect wisdom, one should preserve truth, one should cultivate relinquishment, and one should train for peace. Okay, now the Buddha will carry the teaching one step further. Then this becomes a very beautiful passage. The tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon these foundations. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over him, he is called a sage at peace. The Pali expression, Muni Santo. It's very redolent expression, very deep reverberation since the word Muni is related to the noun Mauna, which means silence. So the Muni is the silent sage. And then Santo is 
peaceful, but it's related to the supreme peace of Nibbana. Okay, then the important word or expression here, tides of conceiving. It's, I think it's used only in the sutta. I don't recall it occurring elsewhere. here it's related to manyana which means conceiving it's deluded thinking false thinking imaginary thinking and then usava is sava means flowing and us is up so a flowing up a swelling up a rising up of false thinking. Then these four aditanas, these four foundations, are almost being depicted as a kind of island on which one stands. And as one stands upon them, then these waves or tides of false thinking no longer can overwhelm them. No longer sweep over one, sweep one away. And now the Buddha is going to explain what is the meaning of these tides of conceiving. Then he says, I am is a conceiving. Thinking, even just this, this is the most basic false thought, is the idea that I am, that I exist in any way so ever. Ahamasmi. This, the Buddha says, this is the conceit I am, the false thought I am. Then, I am this is a conceiving. First, at the most basic or primordial level, the idea I am comes into the mind. When we have the idea I am, then we think, what am I? Then we start finding some way to construct an identity. I am the body. I am feeling, perception, the mental formation, consciousness. Or I am a man. I am a woman. I am a monk. I am a layman. I am American. I am Singalese. I am Tamil. I am Russian. I am this. I am that. So all of these thoughts of identification, these are just forms of sakaya ditti, building up in identity. One starts off with this original false notion, I am, which seems so obvious, we just take it for granted that it, the I is some reality, then we give it some substance by identifying the I am with some aspect of our personal existence. 
I am this. And normally, since we want to live forever, to exist forever, when we get to the stage of philosophical or religious thinking, then we think, my true identity, that must be some kind of permanent self. That's the usual way of thinking. And so then we come to the idea, I shall be. That is, I will exist after death. But there are some thinkers who don't want to go on existing, <laughs> but they still accept the idea, I am as a reality. And so they think we'll all be annihilated and destroyed when the body breaks up. They come to the conclusion, I shall not be after death. These two, I shall be, I shall not be, that is the dualism of, on the one hand, eternalism, sasadavada, and annihilationism, uchedavada. Okay, but most people, at least in the traditional religions, they accept the idea, I shall be. They'll go on existing. So then they start wondering, how shall I be? What will my life be like in, the, in eternity, in the afterlife? Some think we'll have bodies, beautiful, subtle, sublime bodies. That is, we'll, we'll possess form. Others think the body is a hindrance, matter is evil, so we'll just exist as pure spirits or minds. I shall be formless, bodiless after death. Most people want to go on being conscious or percipient, so they'll think, I will perceive after death, I'll be conscious. Some others don't want to be, a few, the minority, somehow they want to exist after death, but not to be conscious. So they think, I shall be non-percipient after death. Then others who have reached some very high meditative states, indescribable, with our ordinary concepts, they think, I shall be not conscious, but not unconscious, neither percipient nor non-percipient after death. So the Buddha says, all of these are just false ways of thinking. All of these are manyana, conceiving. Conceiving is a disease. Conceiving is a boil or a tumor. Conceiving is a dart. By overcoming all conceiving, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. He is not shaken and he does not yearn. Here I have to change, there's a change in the translation, there was actually a mistake here where it says, he is not agitated, that should be changed. He does not yearn. The verb is behaved. He does not have any desire. For there is nothing present in him by which 
he might be born. And what is being referred here? What is being referred? What is being referred to here as that which is not present in him, by which he might be born? What is this? You could say clinging, but more precisely craving. It's the tanha, the craving for bhava tanha, the craving for more existence. Or we might say avijja to ignorance, maybe even to conceiving. There's no conceiving. And so, since there's no more cause within him of future birth, not being born, how could he grow old? How could he age? Not aging, how could he die? But also, I think one could even interpret this in relation to the present, in a sense, that even though we see, like the Arahant, grow old and die, for him, there's no thought, I am growing old, I am dying, or I am to die, I am going to die. <clears throat> because for him, there's no more sense, I am, that thought is gone. For him, there's just this impersonal condition process, which is undergoing certain changes that we think of as aging, and that will at a certain point come to an end. We call it death. For him, it's just the ending or the going out of the flame, we could say. shaken, how could he tremble or shake? Not being shaken, why should he yearn? Why should he have any kind of this anxious yearning? And so the Buddha says, it was with reference to this that it was said, who stands upon these foundations, and when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over him, he is called a sage at peace. Then the Buddha says, again he's addressing the bhikkhu, bear in mind this brief exposition of the sixth element. Did you want to add anything? No, only that we, we can see here that the fertilizer, tanna, yeah first and then we have these philosophical reaction asmimana no? and then we have that what is called ahankara making of I yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you can those who are Westerner educated then you can put your cartesials on cogito ergo sum no? because then you will understand the difference Okay, now we come to sort of back to the dramatic scene in which the discourse is unfolding. <coughs> but 
it says, the text says, Thereupon the Venerable Pukusanti thought, Indeed, the teacher has come to me, the sublime one has come to me, the fully enlightened one has come to me. Actually, this, according to the commentary, Pukusati realized that the one who was speaking was the Buddha a long time ago. But the Buddha didn't pause in his discourse. He just kept on speaking one sentence after another, and so there was no opportunity for Pukusati to express his realization that this was the Buddha. It was only when the Buddha came to the complete end of the discourse that he stopped, and now Pukusati could speak up. And so now he says that this, he's realized that this is the Buddha who has come to him and who has been, while not revealing his identity, has been giving this long exposition of the Dhamma. Then Pukusati remembered that earlier when they first met, Pukusati treated him just like a fellow monk, like an equal, he called him friend and just treated him very casually. So now he feels some remorse about this and he bows down to the Buddha, prostrates himself at the Buddha's feet and then confesses that this transgression overcame him and that he was so foolish and deluded to refer to the Blessed One to call him my friend. And then he asks the Buddha to pardon him for that transgression, which the Buddha does. Then Pukusati, who at this point it seems, I mean, we can know at this point was only still a Samanera, he had not yet received Upasampada, he asked the Buddha to give him the Upasampada. <coughs> then the Buddha asked him whether he has a complete set of the robes and the bowl and he says, no, I don't have the robes and gold. I have to say, there must have been some other discussion going on. Otherwise, how would he know that his <laughs> robes were not complete unless he had asked the Buddha, how many robes do I need, and so on. Anyway, the Buddha says that he will not give the full admission to anyone whose bowl and robes are not complete. He needs to get the full ordination. He needs three robes the under robe, it's the Antaravasaka, the upper robe, the Uttarasanga, and then the outer robe, or cloak, the Sankhati. And sometimes the Buddha, when he sees that there is a disciple who has special merits from previous lives, then he will say, this is according to the, he will say, just come monk, lead the holy life for the complete extinction of suffering, and then that becomes the full admission, the full ordination of that person. Then according to the commentary, when the Buddha says this, through that person's previous merits, say if he came as a layman or as an ascetic, not yet a Buddhist monk, wearing just a, a regular ascetic outform, that would just disappear and he would appear a, automatically fully clothed in monk's robes, if he had a long beard and hair like many of the ascetics did, that would disappear and he would be neatly shaven, head and face, just like a, <laughs> a regular Buddhist monk. But apparently Pukusati didn't have these merits from previous life. In fact, he would have had a very, very strong 
unwholesome karma, which was about to ripen and which was unavoidable. This would be for him like the pothole <laughs> that yeah, even though the, the royal the royal stains now which we find today, even if you look at these royal families with the Kennedy Ken of the yeah, yeah, Diana, yeah. so they have these these uh, accidents yeah, yeah, yeah. because their habits is powerful and power is not always without sin, <coughs> you know, in the past. Okay, so now Venerable Pukusati, after he heard this from the Buddha, he paid homage to the Buddha, then he went out from, by this time it must have been morning already, since they would have been speaking through the whole night. So he went out in order to search for robes, and I guess he would have had a bowl since he was going on alms round, but probably he needed some more robes to complete the set. And while he was searching for the bowl and robes, then a stray cow killed him. Okay, after he died, then a number of monks came to the Buddha and asked him, where has Pukusati been reborn? What is his future course? And now, maybe some of you know the sutta spoken to Bahia in the Udana. In that sutta, the same thing happened to Bahia. He also went out to get his bowl and robes, and he was killed by a, a wild cow also. In that case of Bahia, when the monks came to ask the Buddha where he was reborn, the Buddha spoke a verse which indicated that Bahia had achieved arahanship and wasn't reborn anyway. But in the case of Pukusati, the Buddha said, gives a different explanation. He says, the clansman Pukusati was wise, he practiced in accordance with the Dhamma and did not give me any trouble. With the destruction of the five lower fetters, the clansman Pukusati has been reborn spontaneously, that is in the pure abodes, and he will attain final nirvana there without ever returning from that world. In other words, Pukusati, during the discourse, had achieved the state of non-returning. And that is the end of the sutta. Okay, if there's any questions or any comments, Any questions? Anything? We have no questions, we are too lazy to learn, but uh, I just wanted to find something about that text is in here in the German translation in, in the glossary that in those days being killed by a cow was very common, even in Europe. Mm. There is even some Greek and some Roman uh, writers who write about these uh, being, uh, having an accident with the cow. They must have been something so common as today with the cow. This seems a little strange since now we have cows, but... Yeah, but they are now not anymore so wild, no? 
they are frightened by cars. <laughs> and then we'll have a class again next Thursday.